The term is a combination of uh, the ancient Greek words sin, that means together, and uh, esthesis, that means uh, sensation. There are reports of a, a variety of 60 types of, of synesthesia. You can imagine you can make all kinds of combinations between the, the senses. If you take all these uh, different types together, about uh, one in 20 persons perceive synesthesia. I made an interview with uh, Patrick Heller, he's a Dutchman, and he sees images as soon as he hears uh, music or sounds. I asked him what, what he really saw, and um, he said, uh, when I'm listening to, for instance, a fragment of, of ambient music played by a synthesizer, uh, he said, I see dark red three-dimensional bars. Uh, flat and white in the distance. And they run from, from left to right. He doesn't really see their, their, their ends. Um, and they're almost tra transparent. And uh, only by making a, a brain scan of, of his, his, his brain, uh, you would see perception is more than five separate senses, as we normally consider it, but it's really an, an interaction of senses who cooperate. My name is uh, Christian van Kampen, and I'm working as a social scientist in the fields of uh, the arts, health and, and well-being at two research institutes in uh, the Netherlands. From WBUR in Boston, this is Stylus. Each hour explores an idea in sound, music, and listening. In this hour, we explore seeing and illustrating music. It's a miraculous ability that a sound has, a song has, to recenter you, to move you back in time to a moment of your life when you really, when you were hoping for something. The problem is, how do you do it? I mean, how do you actually paint music? How do you really do that? Painting didn't have to be about something that you represented. Painting was just about painting. It was about to paint. So it's 1896 and we're in Moscow and we're at a theatre called the Bolshoi Theatre. And there's a young student in the audience and his name is Vasily Kandinsky. He's about 30 years old. And he's at the theatre to see a performance of Wagner's Lohengrin. Uh, this is not unusual for him, he's a music fan. But while he listens to the music and when he leaves the theatre, he experiences something which is um, very odd. A transformative experience, but like a vision that changes his life. What's happening to Kandinsky is his first experience of synesthesia the confusion of the senses that makes him see musical notes as colours. He described the experience later on by saying, I saw all the colours in my mind. They stood before my eyes. Wild, almost crazy lines were sketched in front of me. So why did this happen? For Kandinsky, at that moment, there was a direct link between the musical note that he was hearing and the colour that seemed to pop and flash in front of his eyes. Now that moment, when he's stumbling out of the theatre, 
and it's a cold Russian evening with snow falling out of the sky and he's having this vision is a turning point in his life as well as in his art. Up to that point, you have to kind of imagine him as a rather studious, quite serious student, somebody who was studying for law and economics, and his future seemed to be completely mapped out. His future as a lawyer, successful lawyer in Moscow, seemed to be pretty much sorted. He was married to his cousin, which at the time wasn't particularly frowned upon, and he was heading towards a pretty not exciting but fairly successful career in the law but he always had this interest in the arts and after he went to this particular concert he decided to pull a real u-turn in his life and to leave for munich to go and study art his plan being i suppose to capture that experience that he'd had in the theater in painting in other words to create paintings that had the quality of music so the question is, what does music look like? Now, Kandinsky was not the first artist to ask himself that question. Artists had, in fact, been asking that question for probably over 100 years. But Kandinsky is the first artist to really follow that thought to its logical conclusion. Because if you're going to make a painting that has the quality of music, it really has to be abstract like music is it has to not represent anything at all if you ever see any photographs of Kandinsky he looks uh, very professorial he doesn't look like he's a lot of fun he has his little pince-nez glasses slipping down his nose and he looks incredibly serious but this is somebody who was uh, astoundingly radical and the way he writes about art although it's quite scholarly it's still um, very engaging he went through a list of colours his most important colours he said the colour yellow was like the sound of a trumpet it was clear and sharp the colour blue depending on its tone if it's a dark blue or a light blue could either be a flute or a cello or a church organ. Red, again, it's sort of depending upon whether it's a, a very light red or a darker red. If it's a very dark red, it's going to be a tuba. If it's a very light red, it might be a violin. You can hopefully see, just by using yellow, red and blue together in a single painting, that you have the effect of a small orchestra already. Uh, but unfortunately... <laughs> Green was like, and I'm directly quoting Kandinsky here, green was like a fat, extremely healthy cow. So he doesn't tend to use green too much. I'll be proved wrong now. But um, <laughs> that's, um, I think that's pretty much true. Now, the thing about this, I mentioned Kandinsky uh, being a great writer, being somebody who made almost manifestos out of this idea of synesthesia. Now, for Kandinsky... This is important. For Kandinsky, it's not just a question of style. It's not about just doing something new. It's actually part of a deeply held spiritual belief. He really believed that when he saw those images popping in front of his eyes, that they were really real. Not only that they were real, but that they had some kind of direct link to a kind of greater spiritual truth. 
The problem is, how do you do it? I mean, how do you actually paint music? How do you really do that? Um, the key difference, of course, is to do with time. Because when you listen to a piece of music, obviously, it is unfolding over time, which is perhaps why um, Goethe, the great German philosopher and poet, called architecture frozen music. Because architecture, like music, unfolds over time as a person experiences it. But a painting is a very different thing, especially in Kandinsky's time. You see it all in one go. And that's potentially a bit of a problem if you want to represent or evoke music, isn't it? His way of rationalising it would be that a painting is kind of infinite too. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. And so the effect that it has can perhaps be more powerful because it isn't quite so narrative, I suppose. So I started by talking about uh, the Wagner concert that Kandinsky attended. There's a second concert he goes to a little bit later on. It's when Kandinsky went to see a concert of Arnold Schoenberg, who later became a friend of Kandinsky's, was that the doors really got blown open for him. He went to see Schoenberg's concert at a ballroom in Munich, and in the concert, the third thing that Schoenberg played was a very recent piece that he composed called The Three Piano Pieces. And it was completely mind-blowing for Kandinsky. The experience that he'd had outside the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow came back to him again. That experience of synesthesia was incredibly powerful. The music that Schoenberg had composed and that was being performed seemed to have exactly what Kandinsky had been looking for in his paintings. It was creating its own kind of language. It was formless in a very captivating way. And it was utterly experimental and completely novel. So Kandinsky painted the concert. He made a series of sketches culminating in a painting called Impression 3, brackets, concert, which he painted just a few days after that concert. So maybe January the 6th, 1911, something like that, right after seeing that concert. So the music was still reverberating in his brain um, when he sat down at his easel and, and started to paint this painting, which on the surface of it looks entirely abstract, a series of blotches of colour, a large swathe like a wave that runs across the painting in yellow, so that great trumpet sound. There are other blotches of colour, a hot red, a hot dark blue, beautiful oranges and jagged sky blue that runs through the painting. Cutting through the painting is an enormous black shape, which looks a lot like a shark's dorsal fin and is a painting of the piano that was being played during Schoenberg's concert. Once you know that's the piano, when you look at the painting, there are small humped forms, like little horseshoes, that you start to read as audience members. 
but it looks as though the whole of the concert hall has been flooded with light. And that's how it must have felt for Kandinsky. It must have felt as though the whole world had opened up for him. Often I find when I talk to people about um, abstract painting, people, get, people scratch their heads and they get angry or they, they get frustrated. But what Kandinsky entreated his viewers to do was not to think of it in the way that we often think of paintings and not to think of it in the way we often think of writing, rather to experience it physically in the same way that he experienced music physically. He said, lend your ears to music, open your eyes to painting and stop thinking. Just ask yourself whether the work has enabled you to walk about into a hitherto unknown world. If the answer is yes, what more do you want? My name is Ben Street. I'm an art historian and writer. Today we're talking about seeing and illustrating music. decided, in fact, that he would be an artist at age five. So he was known around his neighborhood in Harlem at that time as the chalk artist. He would draw large pictures of cowboys and Indians on the sidewalk, and that was kind of his moniker. It was his uh, badge to the neighborhood toughs and the neighborhood good guys, so they didn't bother him because he was an artist. I'm Sherry Turner de Carava. I'm an art historian. I live in Brooklyn, and uh, we're here talking about uh, a book called The Sound I Saw, which was done by someone I'm very familiar with, a photographer, Roy de Carava, whom we sadly lost in 2009. When you walk down the streets of Harlem in the early evenings, or on the weekends, you could hear people practicing piano. The study of music was, you know, an important aspect of sort of being a person of culture. And there were so many musicians dotting along a street, you know, the families on the second floor or first floor, and you could hear them practicing if you did the route through the uh, community. Uh, he was born in 1919, so it was the post-World War era, and when he started actually doing artistic work, he, he began photographing music and musicians because he was drawn to it. He first, he listened, 
and he would go to Harlem, local Harlem nightclubs and so forth. But uh, later he began to think about how he could capture the sound of what he heard and its influence on him. What's interesting is that, to me, is the issue of that flow, viewing that flow as part of his walking, the pace of his walking, like a walking bass line in a blues, the, this wonderful pace of walking through the community and, and engaging the kind of flow and interaction with people, but the other part of that is that not only was there flow in Harlem, or things happening, but there was density, this incredible richness of content. And it reaches its apogee, of course, in his, his images of Coltrane. So we're looking at the picture of Coltrane on Soprano. And his eyes have become almost dark hollows because of the intensity of his expression as they sort of close down and he goes inward. And uh, I don't think you can find a denser image, just laden, literally laden, with levels of intention and consciousness. And he actually wrote a poem, a free verse poem, to cushion and interact with his pictures. And it, it starts like this. The sound of a man on stage is the scene of a dues-paying member listening within, looking out, thinking, how much like a tree man is, with roots, trunk, and branches reaching into the sky to feel the sun, to be kissed by the wind, bathed by the rain, and cloaked by a night with infinite eyes that see lonely cats and neglected children who prowl the streets of man-made worlds within worlds of steel and brick, squared and cubed by stoned men of intricate duplicity who produce little room. listening to Stylus, a series about sound, music, and listening. 
This episode is about seeing and illustrating music. You know, there are people who will say they close their eyes, and that's the way to really understand the, the true meaning of the musical composition. So there are those kinds of people. Um, there's other people who will say, no, absolutely, you have to consider the entire performance. Speaking about music, this is a scientist at University College London. Her name is Dr. Chia Jung Sai. She did a study last August about live music performance, and specifically she set out to test how much what we see affects what we hear at live shows. She also happens to be a performer herself. And it was through this experience performing and participating in various competitions that I realized, depending on the type of evaluation process involved, whether these competitions required audio recordings or live in-person auditions, there could be very different outcomes. She was investigating a very particular kind of music, solo piano competitions. And it's important to know that within the world of classical music, competitions are huge. Competitions get young performers noticed. Any of the big celebrity virtuosos really earn their place through competitions. And so Dr. Sai wanted to test how we decide these winners. I collected various excerpts from real competitions, uh, some of the top international competitions in the world, and I presented my participants with various versions of these excerpts, whether they were audio recordings or silent video recordings or videos with sound. And the weird thing was, regardless of musical background, people had the best chance at guessing the contest winners from videos that were silent. It suggests that even though people assume sound to be central to the domain of music, to the judgment of music performance, it turns out that even expert panelists, expert judges, are still being quite influenced by visual information. Now this news might be a shock, that what we see matters at least as much as what we hear, especially in the refined world of classical music. But the idea that performances should be theatrical isn't exactly new. We can think back to people like Franz Liszt, a kind of 19th century rock star who pioneered the virtuosic piano performance. He did things that were radical at the time, like rotate the piano so people could see his expression. And he allegedly played with such a fervor that beads of sweat would fly into the crowd. This was just around the time Richard Wagner, who was another big romantic figure, talked about the future of music using a new word, Gesamtkunstwerk. This meant an ideal art that was total, dramatic, and highly visual. But to come back to the study, performance is just one way of experiencing music. In the 20th century, with the spread of records and radio, some musicians began to react against the visual, passionate performance. Now that sound could in one sense be split from its source, musicians could perform in the studio, and listeners could enjoy music at home. Nobody championed this new way of listening better than the late pianist Glenn Gould. Gould was Canadian, a child prodigy, and an all-around eccentric guy. Well, Gould, of course, was idiosyncratic in the way he performed. He sat very low. He had an unusual way of 
dressing. He liked to keep very warm. He'd wear gloves and heavy coats during the summer, for example, and would wash his hands in boiling hot water before going on stage. You know, he didn't have the um, the formal demeanor of that, that that that's familiar from the classical music world. His hair was floppy. His manner is lank. He has a kind of insolent glare in his eyes. Um, there's something magnificently punk about Gould's demeanor, as there is in his playing. This is Richard Brody, who writes mainly about film for The New Yorker. I mean, from someone I knew who saw him perform in public, this friend of mine said it was like watching someone have sex in public. That Gould's approach to music was so agonizingly intimate that it seemed like something that shouldn't be done in front of an audience. Gould had a seductive style of playing, but what really made him popular was not a performance, but his first album in 1955, a recording of Bach's Goldberg variations. This launched Gould on a stratospheric rise, and he sold out shows across the world. But by 1964, his attitudes about performance became more extreme, and Gould shocked the classical music world by deciding to abandon public concerts. He never went on stage again. His withdrawal from the concert hall seems like a renunciation of the theater of musical performance in favor of something movie-like in musical performance. After all, in, in movies, a performer's acting is usually discontinuous. There are close-ups, there are long shots, and, uh, and they're assembled in the editing room. Um, Gould assembled his own performances that way. He made records out of bits and pieces of his recorded performances, and he exerted an extraordinary control over the editing of his, of his musical recordings. And this was all part of Gould's philosophy about the future of music. In essays, he wrote about so-called eye-oriented listening in the concert hall versus a purer, more ear-oriented listening at home. He wrote, The justification of art is the internal combustion it ignites in people's hearts, not its shallow, externalized, public manifestations. But in the end, Gould was wrong about live music, because he went on to predict that all public concerts would go extinct. Live music has become more of a luxury, less of a commonplace. But I think that for all of its rareness, for all of its scarcity, it's all the more valuable. Of course, it's a question of individual temperament. But I think that um, for many musicians, that contact is energizing, that the experience of making music in isolation is a much colder thing, and that the stimulus of the public, the threat or the terror of the moment, is a spur to creation. Here in New York, where we're talking, I know, personally, half a dozen impresarios dying to present you in concerts all across the country, your pick of locations. They offer to pay you any fee that you name. Why do you deny them all? 
Yes, it's not a very enticing prospect, John. It's a very flattering one, I suppose, but it's not an enticing prospect. The, I... the life of a glamorous concert artist is hideous, is dead, is, is part of the past. I think that that has no relevance to the contemporary musical scene. I, I don't believe in it, and I don't think most people who do go believe in it. I think people go to concerts because it kindles memories, and they want to hear From the outside, Rothko Chapel is a fairly unassuming structure. Um, on the inside, uh, it's like you're stepping into a different universe. It's basically an octagonal structure, gray, skylit, and there are 14 canvases spread throughout the eight walls. Mark Rothko was commissioned to create these canvases and to design the space in which they would hang. He is considered one of the most significant painters of the 20th century. He's well known for his mature paintings. You walk into the space and you're neither overwhelmed by its vastness, nor do you feel cramped. It's absolutely perfect and it's perfectly scaled to the paintings that are housed therein. The canvases are very dark, almost black, hints of brown, essentially deep purples. Um, but they're paintings that really exude a calmness and a coolness. I, Coolness is an awkward word. I don't want to say coldness, um, because they're not cold. My name is Ryan Vigil. I'm a composer and pianist and music scholar. There's a tendency amongst some to just stand in front of these paintings for long, long periods of time and just take them in, to slowly trace your way across the canvas in a kind of lazy, undirected manner. This is not a beginning, middle, end type of uh, experience of time that one is having. It's one in which by the time you get to the middle, You've forgotten the beginning, and you can't see the end. Rothko Chapel was dedicated in 1971 and the composer Morton Feldman was present at that ceremony. The people who commissioned the chapel itself um, asked him to compose a piece to be performed in the chapel. Feldman said that he wanted his music to go to the edges just as Mark Rothko's paintings go to the edges. So it would be expansive, it would be reflective, and it would have a sense of deep interior stillness. My name is Robert Simpson, and I'm artistic director of the Houston Chamber Choir. 
I have had an opportunity to perform Morton Feldman's Rothko Chapel in Rothko Chapel. There's a soul to this piece that goes very deeply and I think plays into the fact that Mark Rothko and Morton Feldman were such good friends. For a while there, partly because of the hostility of the musical establishment to what we were doing, we were making our music partly for each other uh, and partly for this community of uh, visual artists. Feldman became friends with uh, visual artists at the time. They talked a lot, hung out together, drank together, but at the same time, they, you might say, they, they talked the same language. And therefore, when there were concerts, the, the, the artists, the painters would show up, who you know, like us, were doing new things. I mean, they were experimenting. They were really redefining what painting was all about. Painting didn't have to be about something that you represented. Uh, painting was just about painting. It was about to paint. My name is uh, Christian Wolf. Basically, now I'm a composer. I'm retired from teaching. Uh, and I met Morton Feldman many years ago. Feldman was a, he was a large man, heavy, very striking uh, black hair, not beautiful, <laughs> not a handsome guy, <laughs> but very impressive. Uh, what else can I tell you? He liked to eat well. Uh, <laughs> he liked the ladies. There's a lot of feeling. I mean, there's a lot of, um, what could you say, soul, I guess, associated with him. So there's a very strong connection for Feldman to the paintings, um, uh, to the space, and to Rothko himself. There's a few really um, interesting, lovely quotations. Feldman talking about writing about Rothko that might be useful just in terms of giving a sense of what elements of Rothko's work he brought with him into his own work. I'm just going to start reading here. Stasis, as it is utilized in painting, is not traditionally part of the apparatus of music. The degree of stasis found in a Rothko or Augustine were perhaps the most significant elements that I brought to my music from painting. The pursuit of a kind of stillness. He's talking about, in musical terms, a certain willingness to repose upon an idea and just allow it to be there. He was mostly interested in focusing clearly on a kind of sound where the pitch was secondary, uh, but the color and the register and the rhythm uh, and the dynamics, those were the primary uh, points of attention. What we were trying to do, Feldman in particular, and all of us, uh, was to make a music that did not have a reference to music history. We were really trying to start from scratch. The quality of stasis is something that Feldman felt very important in his works. And in this particular piece, uh, it's beautifully exemplified by the choral writing. The choir creates that sense of a, a, a canvas on, on which rhythms become the brush strokes. Rothko himself did not live to see 
his paintings hung in the Rothko Chapel, he committed suicide before that ever happened. That's something that has to be hanging over Feldman's head as he writes this composition that's intended to be performed in the Rothko Chapel. Feldman uses a melody that he wrote as a 15-year-old, and this was the moment that he felt it needed to be included, and it is a complete surprise. We come in with this regular sewing machine pattern on the vibraphones uh, that just clicks along and carries with it the liquid quality of the viola and then the suspended chords of the choir. Just like almost looking across a harbor at the blinking lights. fashion, he puts a comma at the end, which is normally used as an indication that the composer wants you to lift in preparation for re-entering. And I believe that it, it can be argued that that is his way of saying, this piece continues.
This is the very latest development, Oramic's graphic sound. You're listening to Stylus. This episode is about seeing and illustrating music. What you've just been listening to is a phonautogram, a sound recording, made on September 15th, 1860, of the Song of the Bee, uh, as sung by the inventor of sound recording, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, one of the very earliest sound recordings in existence today. Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville was the first person to record sounds out of the air as waveforms, but his goal wasn't to play these performances back. He didn't even think that was possible. Instead, he thought people would learn to read the waveforms themselves in order to hear the performances imaginatively in their minds' ears. My name is Patrick Feaster. I'm a sound media historian, and this is a brief history of the waveform. So sound is a series of vibrations that travel through the air, and as that gets plotted out as a function of time, the the resulting graph that we see is what we call a waveform. My name is Karen Topp. I'm a senior lecturer in physics at Bowdoin College. If you were to zoom right into a waveform, down to sort of milliseconds, you would see a very raggedy-looking kind of sinusoidal wave. And what that really is is just an addition of many building block sine waves. The lower frequency sounds, if you zoomed right into that waveform, would have a much longer-looking wavelength, and the higher frequency sounds would have a much shorter wavelength when you were visualizing them. And the purity of that wave, if you were just whistling, um, you can get a waveform zoomed in that looks very much like a pure sine wave. Whereas if you made a very complex sound, like a very rich singing sound or a violin sound, that waveform, when you looked at it zoomed in, would be much more jagged. Well, people have thought about sound as a wave probably forever. I'm Jonathan Stern. I'm a professor at McGill University in the Department of Art, History, and Communication Studies. And among other things, I write about the history of sound. So there was some idea of sound being something like a wave. But the thing that really changes at the turn of the 19th century, and it's really at the end of the 18th century, is people start trying to represent um, what sound waves actually look like or the effects of sound waves. And so there's a number of different attempts over the course of the 19th century to represent sound visually. Um, And the phonograph is really just one. You're Connor, hi. Yeah, this oh, is yeah, Zach. Zach. Get the mic. Yes. Zach. Is that in the corner? <laughs> we, the phonograph is all over there. I'm Carlene Stevens. I'm a curator in the Division of Work and Industry at the National Museum of American History. We're here in a storage room presided over by my colleague, Sherry Stout. If you're using the instrument, you put your face on the big end of the cone, you speak, You sing, and the sound travels in that cone towards a cylinder. And in between, Leon Scott devised a vibrating membrane. And the vibrating membrane could have been paper. It could have been a cow intestine. If you talk into there, you can kind of get an idea of what it was like. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) So 
you're speaking or playing an instrument into the cone. It sets the, the diaphragm into vibration. There is some sort of stylus and that would trace a line in soot that was on a piece of paper wrapped around the drum. And that's your waveform. That's your waveform. In 1857, Scott decided to go on record with his idea just to make sure that nobody would uh, scoop him, come up with the idea before he had a chance to do anything with it. So he wrote up an account of his brilliant idea, put it in a sealed package with the French Academy of Sciences. In the case of sound, can it be hoped for the day when fugitive melodies escaped from the singer's lips will be written by themselves on paper? I believe so, with my phonotograph. If you can imagine, in 1860, there was no way to capture and preserve a great performance in the theater. You could go to the theater, you could hear somebody perform, you could describe it afterwards, but you couldn't capture the thing itself. Scott hoped that this type of inscription would let people, say, open a book of waveforms at home and read the, the great performances of some actor on the stage. And, and as they read, uh, maybe imagine to themselves what it sounded like. But there was no other way to capture this. There was no playback that was in competition with it. So this was incredibly exciting, this idea that, that maybe now for the first time, great performers wouldn't... Uh, become inaccessible to the future when they died. You could still recapture something of what made their work great. Uh, musical performances wouldn't just vanish when they were over. You could go back and recapture something of what, what the genius of performance was in them. And yes, it would be written uh, rather than, than uh, recreated directly as sound, but still, the idea that you could recapture something after it was gone like that, incredibly uh, exciting, incredibly moving. In 1877, Thomas Edison unveiled his speaking phonograph. Instead of scratching a line on paper, he was indenting a piece of tinfoil. After he made the record, he would run the stylus back over the groove, uh, recreate the waveform as sound so that you could reproduce, in essence, this, the original sound. And so that idea really propelled this notion of the waveform into all kinds of new uses. So the waveform isn't... I mean, it, it shows up in different places. The very earliest uh, sampling synthesizers, uh, so we're talking like the Fairlight in 1979, the Synclavier uh, in the early 1980s, both had waveform displays. And this continues in uh, digital audio software through the 1980s. So Pro Tools, the first uh, major commercial multi-track recording software that's still considered a sort of industry standard, uh, Pro Tools had a waveform display. And in fact, they're, used, they're still used today uh, if you're editing sound, you know, if you want to copy and paste part of a program, copy and paste part of a program, possibly when you're editing this program, you'll be looking at a waveform and, and uh, highlighting it with your mouse in much the same way that you would highlight uh, text in a word processor, and it sort of becomes the visual representation of the stuff of the audio. It's a very effective way of conveying audio in a visual, in a visual way. Uh, my name is Eric Walfors. I am the co-founder and CTO of SoundCloud. So 
on SoundCloud, everything really begins with someone sharing uh, a piece of audio. Um, and when they share a piece of audio, our servers will take the audio, analyze it, um, translate the, the audio content into a visual image, um, a waveform image. When you want to sort of look ahead, you know, into the future or understand a piece of sound very quickly, the waveform helps you to do that. But it all also enables this very powerful form of interaction where you can place a comment at any point in time and you can you can give direct feedback to, to the creator. You know, it has this nice side effect that it, it's kind of an in, infographic, sort of elegant um, element to it. So every waveform is, is unique. Um, I know certain waveforms by heart, right? So I can almost look at a certain waveform um, and know what, what audio is behind it. So yeah, it's almost like a fingerprint, if you will. Today, we're so used to the idea of playing sound back that it's hard to, to put ourselves back in a mindset where we think of it in terms of an inscription. The fact that this, this visual history of dealing with recorded sound has an unbroken history too, often gets overlooked. People tend to think of Scott's phonograph as a dead end. It's not. We still do deal with waveforms, with recorded sound, in very much the sort of way he had in mind. Nietzsche says, the bridge leads from the mysterious castle of the musician into the free country of images. You first think, I know I remember this song. All I'm hearing is the radio in the car. I had it up reasonably loud, I guess. I was in the supermarket yesterday, and suddenly over the PA system came the Suzanne Vega song. I could tell because I, I could recognize her voice. Even among all the sounds of the place. All of a sudden, uh, every breath you take, comes on and it just hit me. And that's one of the great things is when you rediscover a song you really like from a long time ago and you think, I, I still, I have that one-to-one -one correspondence with that song. Before I knew it, I just had this vivid image in my mind of being back in Austria when I was an exchange student. You know, I just remember this girl who I had a crush on. There's this wash of emotion that came over me, you know, that kind of warm nostalgia, passion feeling, you know, your heart skips a beat and your, your stomach drops an inch. So often with a song, I'm just craving to be reminded of that one moment. It's that one moment where I'm flying over the middle section and I go back to the beginning theme. Or it's a moment in the bridge section of a song where something, something perfect happens. It needs the whole song because you need all the other stuff to have happened. But it's that moment that you come back to that's kind of the nugget of your memory. That's the thing that's pulling you back and that's the thing that you want to re-experience. Music is probably next to architecture 
the art form that makes the most use of repetition. My name is Bertolt Höckner and I teach music history at the University of Chicago. And when you repeat something, really your art form is predicated on memory. So musical form is really building on music coming back. The chorus and the refrain in a song, themes in a sonata, a ritornello returning, the da capo form, so play from the head. All these returns, reprises, recapitulations, allow us to revisit and rehear or re-experience in some way what is different. But music is not just a memory, it can also be a cue. So it cues up things that music becomes associated with. The longer your life is, I mean, I'm 57 now, uh, some of the pieces of music I've liked, I started liking when I was, you know, 14, let's say. Let's say Debussy's La Mer. I'm Nicholson Baker, and I'm a writer of uh, books and magazine articles, and I live in South Berwick, Maine. I was an aspiring composer when I was in high school. That's what I did most of the time. I played the bassoon, and I, I wanted to be uh, an avant-garde classical music composer. And uh, my bassoon teacher told me, there's this amazing piece of music, and if you listen to this piece of music, you will hear the ocean, and I was very impressed by that. And I did listen to it, and it sounded like the ocean, and that's all I got from it. I thought, wow, nobody has made waves look like this. Nobody has tried to look at, say, a hokusai drawing of a wave and turn that into a sound. This band is a genius. And then years go by and you listen to that piece of music again, you're adding in all of your frustrated ambitions and mistakes and, and lost youth. Lost youth comes into play. And then there's, this, there's another phase where uh, I played La Mer for my wife and she said, wow, that is incredible. And the, the sense of being able to pass on your own richly remembered favorite piece of music to some other person you love. And then I did that with my children. And so now when I hear La Mer, I'm hearing something that's got all these points of attachment with my own life. The Lyric Opera of Chicago had a ring cycle schedule. So I took a friend who had visited me and we went to the dress rehearsal of Die Valkyrie. And just as the writer of the Valkyrie launches into a series of brilliantly orchestrated climaxes, that friend leaned over and said, you know, I'm really having a hard time getting those helicopters out of my head. Of course, what she referred to is the attack of a U.S. helicopter squadron on a Vietnamese village from Francis Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Francis Coppola, I think, knew what he was doing. The music was used at the end of an iconic, monumental film, The Birth of a Nation. It's a very problematic film. It's fraught with racial tension. And what you have in Apocalypse Now is racial tension of a different sort. 
Coppola is really summoning a moment of carnage, of warfare that is based on ethnic and racial difference. And The Ring itself is really a struggle between races. It's a struggle between ethnic groups, one of which claims to be superior, the gods. So you have a very rich record of layered meanings, associations, memories. It's a miraculous ability that a sound has, a song has, to recenter you, to move you back in time to a moment of your life when you really, when you were hoping for something, when you wanted something to turn out, when you were newly infatuated with somebody and you desperately wanted things to work out, and here is this song that's helping you out, <laughs> and it's kind of contributing to your emotional state and that, and that lays down a very deep groove in your brain, I think. And then sometimes it's sort of a, a, a moment. It's a very wonderful moment of naked rediscovery where you are able, for some reason or other, to hear it again, like, you know, cornflakes, hear it again for the first time. So I guess with memory and music and really the pieces that are deepest within you, that there are these moments where you allow them to become external again, to look at them as if they're not part of your life, but as works of genius outside of you. And then you realize, you realize why you held this piece of music in your mind all these years. about seeing and illustrating music was produced by Zach Ezor, Connor Gillies, Kainat Khan, and Dan Mozzie, with help from Deanna Arquetto and George Hicks. The program includes archival sound recordings from Concert Dropout, a 1968 interview by John McClure with Glenn Gould. Thanks to Catherine Gorman and Erica Lance for helping to edit the hour. And thanks to our engineers, Mike Garth, Marquise Neal, James Trout, and Paul Veitkus. Our intro music is by Ryoji Ikeda, and we're going out on music by Laurel Halo. Our executive producers are Connor Gillies and Zach Ezor. Our supervising editor is Lisa Tobin. I'm Kainat Khan. You can find us and hear more on iTunes and on Twitter at Stylus Radio. And check out our website, wbur.org stylus. Stylus is supported by WBUR in Boston and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange.